Well, this morning we are coming to a particularly sacred part of the New Testament. Uh, sometimes when I'm talking to Teresa, she'll say something like, I know what has happened. I want you to tell me how you feel. And that's a big deal. You know, tell me how you feel. Like a different level of communication. I see the facts. Now, what are you doing with those facts, you know, on the inside? And today we're going to actually be talking about how God feels. It is kind of a rare thing in Scripture to get this kind of a glimpse of how God feels. So, Romans chapter 8 is a wonderful text. Uh, the whole chapter is amazing. In chapters 3 through 7, we talked about being rescued from the punishment of sin and from the power of temptation over us, the tyranny of sin. And all of that is invisible. We can't really see it. And it's spiritual. And chapter 8 recaps all of this. So that was wonderful when we saw that in chapter 8. And then chapter 8 kind of segued into something else, the rescue of believers from things that are visible, the hardships of this life, our physical bodies. When we die, they're going to be resurrected. And even the entire physical universe, we talked about the millennial um, paradise on planet Earth. And so all of that is in chapter eight as well. And then a couple of weeks ago, we talked about how utterly important and comforting it is to realize God's love now. That was lesson one from a little series here in chapter eight. And then last week we talked about God's soon arriving remedy for all of these hardships. And that was lesson two. That was last week. Now today we want to talk about God's help in the meantime. Like right now, uh, between the time that uh, we are living in right now and the time that Jesus returns, what do we have to look forward to now? What's so happy about this? We're in hardship what gives us comfort now? And the answer is we have the Holy Spirit's silent help with all our prayer requests. And that's a really big deal. Um, on the side, notice that Romans chapter 8 has more references to the Holy Spirit than any other chapter in the entire New Testament. It's really a big deal. And we are obligated to say something about this. I, I talk about this at other times, and so I don't want to feature it today, but I want to say something about it because it's just really, really important. In this little text that we're going to be dealing with today, we come to this statement in Romans eight twenty six. We do not know what, know what to pray for as we ought. So likewise, the Spirit helps our weaknesses. Those are all of our hardships, including our deficiencies in understanding and spiritual maturity. He helps us with all of those. And then we do not know what to pray for. That is just so important. We do not know what to pray for. And that's true. For example, you often pray for financial help. Would you still pray for more money if you knew that that money would somehow bring destruction either to your life or to the lives of your children? Would you still pray? We don't really know what to pray for. Should we ask for more money or not? We often ask for beauty and healing for our children. But would you still pray for beauty and healing for your children if you knew that good health and beauty would spoil them and make them arrogant? We often pray for a particular romance to work out, you know, that there wouldn't be a heartbreak, whatever. But would we still pray for that particular romance to work out if we knew that tomorrow a much better life partner would come along and be introduced to us or to the people we're praying about? You see, we don't really know what to pray for. And that's such an important idea in Scripture. 
an important cross-reference to that, which I also often try to point out to you, is from James 4.13, where the Apostle James says, you do not know what shall happen tomorrow. So sometimes we think, well, I know what's going to happen. The Lord is going to bless us and this ministry is going to explode and I'm going to get better from my health problems. The Lord has promised that all these good things are going to come to me. I know what's going to happen tomorrow. And James says, no, you don't. Now, when you put these two ideas together, you have a very powerful doctrine of Christian uncertainty. We don't know what to pray for and we don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. So says the scripture. So, If the Apostle Paul, because says, we do not know, even you, Paul, even you do not know. We, he and his apostolic associates, do not know what to pray for. Well, if he doesn't, we don't. If that's true, if even the Apostle Paul didn't know what to pray for, then all of us should stop claiming to know. You shouldn't say, well, I know exactly what to pray for. I know what God's will is. Well, Paul didn't, so why are you so much better than Paul? I think we should all stop claiming to know when we don't. Secondly, we should all stop expecting ourselves to know precisely what we should be praying for. We shouldn't expect that we're going to have this certainty about, I know, I want this mountain to be moved and cast into the sea. I just know. What makes you so sure? Because even the Apostle Paul said he didn't know. And then thirdly, we should all largely ignore the self-confident boasts of those who profess to know precisely what they should be praying for or what we should be praying for. We should all pray that this mountain be cast into the sea and that's, that's God's will and we should all do it. I think we should largely ignore those kinds of claims. Since we do not know what to pray for with certainty most of the time, that would mean we have to stop saying things like this. We shouldn't say, I believe God that I will recover from my cancer tomorrow. God never told you that you're not going to have cancer tomorrow. James says you don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. So you can't believe God that you're going to get better tomorrow since God never told you any such thing. You'd be believing your own hunch, not believing God. And we have to quit saying things like, I'm trusting God that the funding for my vision will come. Who says the funding of your vision will come? Paul said, I didn't know what to pray for most of the time, and neither did my apostolic associates. James says, you don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. Your vision might not come to pass tomorrow. Your funding might not come tomorrow. You might be dead tomorrow. And we have to stop saying things like, I'm trusting the Lord that I will have a happy marriage. Who says? There's no guarantee that you're going to have a happy marriage. There should be a guarantee that as you follow Jesus, you're going to be an excellent spouse yourself. But you don't know if that will be reciprocated. Your spouse may cheat on you. Your spouse may descend into some sort of a problem. And you won't have a happy marriage. God never promised that you would have a happy marriage. Sometimes young people say, well, I saved myself for marriage because then I knew I would have a happy marriage. We don't know any such thing. Do save yourself for marriage. But there's no guarantee in Scripture that you're going to have a happy marriage. You would not be believing God for that. You'd believe your own hunch, perhaps, but not God. We have to quit saying, I believe in God's promise that my next baby will be a boy. God never promised any such thing. You can't believe God for that. I have faith that my promotion will come next year. Well, you might have faith in your own hunch, but God never promised you that you'd have a promotion next year. The Apostle James says, you might not even be alive next year. And finally, I believe God that my child will return to the faith. God never said any such thing. 
a lot of children have died in their waywardness. So we can't believe God for such things because God never promised such things. And so we just have to realize we don't know what to pray for and we don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. And this text of scripture is so important for that. One other additional side note, uh, we're going to be talking about the Holy Spirit making intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. Sometimes people suggest, well, this would be praying in tongues, you know. They're groanings that cannot be uttered. They're not English words or they're not the normal language. Just notice that these are not uttered. So tongue speaking is always an utterance, but what the Holy Spirit is doing is not uttered. So in other words, this cannot be tongue speaking. Here's the text we're looking at today. Likewise, uh, it says likewise because in chapter 8, we've already talked about the Holy Spirit indwelling us, the Spirit of God dwelling in you. And because of that, he is the instigator of our adoption so that we cry, Abba, Father. And also he's going to raise our bodies from death. If the Spirit of him that dwells in you uh, quicken Jesus from the dead, he'll also quicken your mortal bodies. And so there's going to be a resurrection because of the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. But besides all of that, we have this. The Spirit also helps us with our infirmities, all our sufferings, including deficient understanding and spiritual maturity. These are deficiencies, and he has to help us. The Spirit also helps our infirmities, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit itself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. And he who searches the hearts knows what is in the mind of the Holy Spirit, even though it is silent. He knows what is in the mind of the Holy Spirit because he makes real, though silent, intercession for us according to the will of God. Today we're going to look at three really important and and I consider to be very sacred ideas. We're going to talk about divine sympathy and help that comes when we pray. And then we're going to talk about sympathetic Trinitarian dialogue and involvement in our sufferings. And then we're going to talk about what I'm calling omniscient wish granting. And all of these are so wonderful. And just to get a feel for it, because we can never deeply understand all this, right? But if we just could get a, a glimpse of it, a feel for it, it changes everything. So again, our text says, likewise, besides all these other wonderful things that the Holy Spirit is doing, he also helps our infirmities. We do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. That's such a great idea. Groanings, this is sympathy. When you pray, the Holy Spirit is groaning in sympathy. Um, in the word sympathy in English, you see the S-Y-M prefix that's uh, together with. With and pathy is pathos, right? Passion. He is interceding with passion. It's the same thing we have in the English word Compassion, C-O, co means with, or com is okay too. Com is with, and passion, compassion. He is praying with feeling. He's sorry for us. And so we have intercession with groanings. And not just sympathy, but also help, because the text says the Spirit helps our infirmities. So he's got this, this passion, this compassion, this sympathy, feeling sorry for us and sending help as well. In Hebrews 4.16 it says we should pray because then we could obtain mercy and find grace to help. So he's going to have sympathy and he's going to help. And that's just so wonderful, right? We sometimes imagine that the Holy Spirit is aloof, detached, 
Like if God knows what's going on, he doesn't really care. And I even wonder if he's paying attention to what's going on. It just is like God is a machine. God is like cerebral. He's academic. He doesn't really get all emotional about such things. But that's not what this text is saying. This text is saying he is emotional. The Holy Spirit is groaning in emotion. And this is not the first time in chapter 8 that we've talked about groaning. Because previously we saw the whole creation groans and travails in pain together unto now. And not only they, they're not the only ones groaning, but even we Christians groan within ourselves. So you see what's happening here. We groan under the hardships of this life. And the Holy Spirit is groaning right along with us. He cares. He's all involved. That's such a thing to know. When I was doing pastoral counseling courses in Bible college and seminary days, they always made a big deal out of distinguishing between sympathy and empathy. And they said, you guys are going to be listening to people's problems all the time. And if you sympathize with them, if you feel it right along with them, you're going to be crying when you go home. So don't get so sympathetic. You have to be detached. What you need is empathy. You're going to understand it in your mind, but you're not going to let it go to your heart. You're not going to join them in the suffering. So empathy, but not sympathy. But that's not what God does. There's sympathy. You're groaning and he's groaning. He's not detached. And we notice that this is taking place, especially with prayer. In every prayer, the Holy Spirit is making intercession for us. So here's the $10,000 question. What happens if you don't pray? Now, we're not saying that the Holy Spirit doesn't intercede and groan for us, even if you don't pray. But the point of the text is that this especially happens when you do pray. So when you're praying, the Holy Spirit is right there with you, groaning. When you don't pray, we don't have a similar assurance. Um, God cannot always change our circumstances. He cannot always do what we're asking him to do. Say, I, I don't have money. I want money. I don't have health. I want health. I don't have a good relationship with this person. I want to have a good relationship with this person. God cannot always wisely give us what we're asking for. But he always cares. And that does make a difference. It really does matter. In Hebrews 4.15 again, we do not have a high priest who cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities. You think he doesn't feel for you? You think he doesn't feel sorry? He doesn't care? This text says, oh, you have the wrong high priest. Our high priest is touched with the feelings of our infirmities. And that's so great. In Psalm 103, verse 13, as a father pities his children, so our God pities those who fear him. He feels sorry for us. That just makes a difference, don't you think? That God feels sorry for us. In Lamentations 3, 21, Jeremiah says, this I recall to mind. I think about this a lot. This I recall to mind, and therefore I have hope. It is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed because they just lost a war in the book of Lamentations. Uh, Jeremiah is walking through the charred rubble of Jerusalem. And so they could have all died. He said, it is of the Lord's mercies that we didn't all die. It's because his compassions do not fail. They are new every morning. He says, this is what I think about. 
that the Lord really does feel sorry for us. His compassions never end. He just feels sorry for us. In the book, Five Languages of Apology, uh, the author tells the story of a medical doctor who did truly make a mistake and he was being sued for malpractice. And in a way, he deserved it. But he felt sick about what had happened. And his lawyer said, don't you dare talk to the victim or the victim's family about any of this because you're going to say the wrong thing and we're going to go down hard in court. So don't talk to the family. Well, he just couldn't stand it anymore. So he told the family, I am so sorry. I made a mistake and I want you to know I am sick about this. As soon as he said that to the family, their hatred just melted away. And now they saw that everybody makes a mistake. The doctor made a mistake and he's sick about it. And they just dropped the malpractice suit. It matters to know that God cares so much. I mean, he might not be able to do what you're asking him to do in prayer. But this you can be sure of that the intercession of the Holy Spirit is with groaning and he does care so much. Now, not only is this sympathy expressed by the Holy Spirit, and this is so wonderful, but we also see that there is going to be this Trinitarian dialogue and involvement in your problems with sympathy. So again, notice what the text says. Uh, Likewise, beyond all these other things that the Holy Spirit does that are all just wonderful, the Spirit also helps our infirmities. Helps. And because we don't know what to pray for, but the Spirit makes intercession for us with groanings, which cannot be uttered. And he who searches the hearts, the Father searches all hearts, he knows what is in the mind of the Holy Spirit, even though this is all silent. He knows what the Holy Spirit is groaning silently about because he makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. So in other words, there's this interceding. And, you know, we don't use the word intercession very often. So to intercede means that we are going to go to someone else and make a request. In this case, the Holy Spirit going to the Father with a request that actually isn't spoken. It is silent and it is groaned. God gives us this advice in Romans twelve fifteen: weep with those who weep, which is so important, right? As, um, as a husband, this is something Teresa had to teach me. Like, when I tell you about a problem, I don't necessarily want you to fix it. I just want you to stand with me. It's like, oh, okay. So I'm going to talk, and you don't have to talk. You just listen. Um, and that's biblical. Because Romans twelve fifteen says, just weep with those who weep. You can't always fix everything. But you could always weep with them, right? And here we find that God is giving us the advice that comes from a Trinitarian dialogue in which the Holy Spirit interceding for us with groanings is interacting with God the Father who understands the silence and sometimes they can't fix what's wrong. Can't fix it. So we're just going to groan. We're going to stand with you and weep with those who weep. God is giving the advice 
that comes from the Trinitarian arrangement of the universe. In Matthew 26, Jesus is about ready to be arrested and then go on trial and die. It says he's in the garden. He took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, that's James and John, and began to be sorrowful and very heavy. And he said to them, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even unto death. Remain here and watch with me. Do you find that interesting? Here is the Son of God, and he doesn't want to be alone in this suffering. He said, would you just stay with me right now? Isn't that something that the Lord Jesus wanted Peter, James, and John to just be there? Just stand with me. Just watch. Of course, they fell asleep and botched the whole thing up, but whatever. Even Jesus didn't want to be alone when he's suffering. And the Holy Spirit is not ever going to let you be alone when you're suffering. Because when you pray, because you're groaning, he also makes intercession. Groaning. Ella Wilcox, the poet, said, When the world laughs, oh, you laugh and the world laughs with you, but when you cry, you cry alone. That will never be true for the child of God. Never. When you cry, when you weep, the Lord will weep with you. The groanings of the Holy Spirit. It makes all the difference. When you think about this intercession between God the Father and the Holy Spirit, that is just so interesting, right? That means that your prayer is important enough to call for a meeting between God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. When you pray, it matters. And there's going to be this big meeting. And in this meeting between the Holy Spirit and God the Father, they're going to be talking and sympathizing, right? Groaning. So communicating about how sorry they feel, how much they love you, and how much you will one day enjoy the resolution that's on the way. That's what this interceding is. I mean, we can't put words in God's mouth. We don't want to. But from Scripture, we can see that there's groaning. There is sympathy. There's feeling here. And we know that there's going to be a resolution. We already talked about that. The whole creation groans and trails waiting for the redemption, the adoption, the manifestation, unveiling of the sons of God, the glorification. So we know there's sympathy. We know there's resolution. And we know that there is love from any text of scripture. Maybe a few years ago you saw this picture. It's not a great picture, but it's a great story. It went viral on social media. That is an ER doctor who just lost a 19-year-old patient. He went outside and sat next to that wall where nobody could see him, turned his back on the world so he could cry. He's just feeling sick. A paramedic knew what had just happened, and he took the picture of this doctor and... uh, got the doctor's permission to post it. It went viral because people understand that doctors are not just academic, cerebral, aloof, detached. They care, at least the best doctors care. And everybody was very touched by that. God cares. Say, oh, I'm sick. I have these infirmities. I have these deficiencies. I don't even know how I'm supposed to be praying. God cares. And just knowing that, just knowing that God earnestly, dearly cares makes a huge difference. It's, it's very sacred. During the Vietnam years, there's a doctor working in Japan. His name was Dr. Edwards. 
and he was a burn specialist. He's working uh, in one of our outposts in Japan, and of course, Vietnam is much closer to Japan than here in the States, so the worst cases oftentimes went to Japan. And um, it turns out that Dr. Edwards had just accompanied his own brother Grant home from Vietnam because Grant was killed in action and his remains were unviewable. Now, when someone is killed in action, they appoint a soldier to escort the body. Every body has its own soldier escort, and they like the escort to have some attachment, like this would be a great friend of the deceased or, or a relative, somebody who has some kind of special bond and attachment. And so since Dr. Edwards was right there in Japan, he went and became the escort for Graham's um, casket back home. He had done all of that duty, and he just got back to Japan to uh, continue his uh, work there in the military hospital. And the night he got back, they had the helicopter fly in. Another young man, his, his name was David Jensen, and David Jensen was just covered with burns because a detonator went off in his backpack and set him on fire. And um, he's, he's profoundly burned. Well, David was the same age as Graham, who was Dr. Edwards' brother. And, and Dr. Graham was always compassionate, but catching him at a really tender time in his life. And, and he just loved David, and he did everything he could for him, but the burns were too bad, infections set in. And um, when David was ready to die, uh, Dr. Edwards came in and was surprised that David could speak at all because he was so bad off. And, and David said, Doc, you didn't have to come, not all the time, because Dr. Edwards always accompanied to the whirlpool where they're soaking off the dead skin and scabs and all of that, you know. And you didn't have to come, not all the time. And Dr. Edwards said, well, I wanted to. And David said, well, they told me about your brother and you're taking him home. And then he said, Doc, take me home too. Please, Doc. I don't want to go alone. It's just so sweet. Nobody wants to be alone when they're suffering. You're never going to be alone as a child of God when you're suffering. It's never going to happen. When you say, Lord, I hurt, the Holy Spirit is going to weep with you. He's going to groan with you, sympathize with you. You will never be alone. Sure, laugh, and the whole world laughs with you. But when you weep, you're still not going to weep alone. That will never happen because of Christ. Omniscient wish granting. I mean, the sympathy is great, but that's not the whole story, right? So what happens now? This is so great. Likewise, also, the Spirit helps our infirmities. Not just sympathizing, although that's a really big part of this text. But he also helps. There's like this intercessory dialogue that we can only imagine between God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. And um, you, could just, you could just imagine that they're not sympathizing with nothing to do. It's sympathizing with something to do, with a resolution forthcoming. Many times, the intercession of the Holy Spirit is probably correcting the goofy things that we say. Teresa was watching something on social media a couple of weeks ago, and it was a little girl who desperately wanted to eat crayons. She's very young. And she kept trying to put it in her mouth, and her mom was saying, don't eat it, 
And not for eating. She's kind of crying because she can barely stand it. I want to eat the crayons. You know, why do they look like Starburst if you can't eat them? And, and so don't eat the crayons. You can imagine we're praying and we say some ridiculous thing that the Lord can't. Lord, I want to eat crayons. And the Holy Spirit is going to say, Father, uh, ignore that. <laughs> we're not going to give him crayons. We're going to do something else. Right. And. But some of it is just corrective because who knows all the goofy things we pray. Lord, please let me win the lottery. And, and the winning the lottery would destroy your life. So it's like corrective. Like, uh, Father, we're not doing that, but we're groaning over here. And all the time, whether it's corrective or not, all the time the Holy Spirit's dialogue with the Father has a sympathetic element, right? Groanings which cannot be uttered. Don't eat the crayons. You know, we got to fix that. But always sympathy. Here's my... Hall of Fame uh, Museum of Saints. So, you know, in this picture, we have somebody who was unbelievably molested. We have Holocaust victims, but people born with birth defects and accidents and shot up in war. And all of them were at peace. All of them came to understand the joy of the Lord. You know, Strength for today, sympathy, and bright hope for tomorrow. Great is thy faithfulness. Bright hope for tomorrow. Bright hope. And all these people understand that. When Johnny was injured and she talked about being a 16-year-old kid in the hospital, uh, she said, I remember when I was in the hospital, I used to imagine myself in the Gospel of John chapter 5, lying at the pool of Bethesda, where all the other disabled, sick, and lame people were. And I used to picture myself there pleading with the Lord, do not forget me. Don't pass me by, Lord. Heal me. And many years later, my husband, Ken, uh, and Johnny went to Israel. My husband and I had a chance to actually visit the Pool of Bethesda. And as soon as I saw those old ruins, I turned to Ken and went, Ken, you won't believe it. I'm so glad God didn't answer my prayer because the no answer to my prayer has meant a more urgent leaning upon him every day, a more vibrant hope of heaven, deepened concern and compassion for others who hurt and Johnny and friends ministry. All the glorious good things that have happened in my life and in the life of others, all because God said no. And leaning on the guardrail and looking at the ruins of the pool of Bethesda, I realized how wonderful it is that God sometimes says no. So she's been in a wheelchair all of her life, quadriplegia, and she's thanking God for it. It's good that God doesn't always answer our prayers. It's good that he says no. But it's also good that there's going to be a resolution, omniscient wish granting, right? Uh, you could imagine uh, somebody pleading and the Holy Spirit groaning along with him. And maybe it's like God the Father and God the Holy Spirit saying, ah, and bless him. It hurts to see him suffer and beg like this. But won't it be delightful when he is actually enjoying his rank and privilege that comes to him because he has suffered so nobly in this? That must be what the dialogue is like. Or she's pleading so sweetly for her loved one to survive this and be well. And, oh, God bless her. It hurts to see her like this and to see her begging like this. But won't it be something... When she and her loved one are forever united and blessed and glad beyond imagination because what they have experienced, they've done so nobly for us and will reward them forever. Remember, 
Paul's prayer for healing wasn't granted. But his bigger prayer was, right? His real prayer was that in nothing I would be ashamed, but that with all boldness as always, so now also Christ would be magnified in my body, whether it be by life or by death. That happened. Henceforth, there is for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord has promised. See, the big prayer was answered. The little prayer, no. The big prayer was answered. Remember, Augustine, I always remind you this, it's just such an important lesson on prayer. Augustine is a very, very depraved young man partying everything with women and his mother is a Christian and this is 400 AD. Augustine says, I'm going to go to Rome because he's going to party and she doesn't want him to go to Rome and she prays that he won't go to Rome, but he does go to Rome. It was at Rome that Augustine became a Christian. Many years later, Augustine is recalling this. He says, that night I slipped away secretly and she remained to pray and weep. And what was it, O Lord, that she was asking of you in such a flood of tears, but that you would not allow me to sail? But you, taking your own secret counsel and noting the real point of her desire, did not grant what she was then asking in order to grant her the thing for which she had always been asking. You see, there's this omniscient wish granting. You know, no, I'm not going to let you eat the crayons, but I'm going to do something wonderful for you. The thing you really, really want, oh, I have that. And you say, how do we know such things in Scripture? Well, because we're told that it is unimaginable. It has not entered into your heart the things which God has prepared for them that love him. We're going to get the big answer to prayer, but lots of little prayers we're not going to get granted just so. And that's why, you know, I have to show you this anytime we do this. That's why whenever what I pray for is not evidently coming to pass. Here's my song. Uh, You know, it's sung to the tune of Cinderella, uh, Walt Disney movie. Uh, Instead of a dream is a wish your heart makes, it becomes a prayer. A prayer is a wish your heart makes to our Lord so dear. In prayers, you will lose your heartaches. They reach his loving ear. Have faith in your Lord, and someday his rainbow will come shining through. Don't let your heart be filled with sorrow, for you'll surely see tomorrow what you wish for most of all has come true. I honestly believe that with all of my heart. Anytime I see my little prayers not being granted, I take great comfort in knowing, and I do take great comfort in knowing, that what I have wished for most of all as I follow Jesus that will absolutely come true. So here's our conclusion. Between now and eternity, the Holy Spirit is expressing true sympathy. He does care. And that makes a difference. Just knowing that he does truly care, he groans right along with me. And the Father joins him. There is this Trinitarian meeting over my suffering and my prayer, which is just extraordinary. They care so much together. And they have sympathetically agreed to let our light and momentary hardships work for us a far more exceeding and eternal way of glory, which, as Paul says in Romans 8, it is not worthy to be compared with what comes next. So now you're suffering. Now you're groaning. I have two assurances for you. The first one is that the Lord does care. He's not detached. He's not aloof. He does truly, truly care. Care enough to groan right along with you. 
And the second assurance is, as you follow Jesus, the end of this story is so happy, it's not even worthy to be compared with the light sufferings you're going through right now. And that's the gospel truth.